Hope you're doing well today. It is 10.30 on Thursday, March 18th, and it's a sunny, beautiful day where I am in North Texas and wherever you may be. I hope it's a nice day, and I thank you for making this study a part of your day. Uh, today we are studying Romans chapter 10, so we've already studied the first nine chapters of Romans. You can find videos at the Abiding Grace Lutheran Church Facebook page, or you can find uh, these in podcasts. So um, glad you're here. Glad you found your way here. Hope you're doing well and uh, look forward to studying Romans chapter 10 with you. Uh, we are uh, studying Romans, one of the most theological and, and interesting books in all of scripture for me. Um, Paul is writing some incredible theology, some things that have stood the, the test of time, things that have uh, made it a huge impact in the world, so uh, in the way that we understand God. So the book of Romans, a uh, great book, and uh, more than halfway through it now. So uh, glad you're here and hope you're doing well. Okay, so let's jump right in. We are going to start with verses 6 through 9. 6 through 9. Paul writes, But the righteousness that comes from faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So verses 6, 7, and 8 are kind of uh, interesting uh, in that they lead up to verse 9. And verse 9, to me, is the important verse here. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, basically, we have here what Paul Paul believes this is what you must do to be saved. This is, this is what you must do to be part of God's eternal kingdom, right? You must say, Jesus is Lord, you must say Jesus is Lord. Verse 9, Jesus. This, this is a highly controversial thing to say that Jesus is Lord back then. We say that now, like, no big deal. Yeah, Jesus is Lord, right? What does that mean? What does that mean, though? But that, had, that would have different significance uh, when read 2,000 years ago. Uh, the word Lord was given to Roman emperors. It was also given to Greek gods, and that's the way the Hebrews uh, would would refer to the divine name, we refer to God. So for the Jews, uh, it meant that Jesus was God, that Jesus was at the same level of the God of the Old Testament. Uh, Philippians 2.9 said, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. I mean, this is, this is Trinitarian theology, right? It's that Jesus is Lord on the same level as the Father, as the God of the Old Testament. And so for, for people who thought that Jesus came from God or that Jesus was a prophet, this is a big thing. This is a big thing. Now for the Romans, for the Romans, when they hear that, that Jesus is Lord, they think, um, but the emperor is Lord. What is, Jesus is Lord in the same way that the emperor is Lord, in the same way that like is a king. Uh, so they hear that and it's something different. For the Greeks, it means that Jesus is like Zeus, right? Because, because Zeus is, was considered, you know, the God of gods, right? And so Zeus was referred to as Lord. And if you look to, and if we go back to Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 23, where Paul is talking to the men of Athens. He says, men of Athens, I notice you are religious in every way. 
For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. So basically say, you have been worshiping Jesus, the Lord, right? In the same way that you've been worshiping Zeus and the other gods, but let me tell you now about Jesus. Now, for the men of Athens, it never would have occurred to them that this unknown God was more powerful than Zeus, right? But but that's what Paul is saying. Paul, you know, that he is the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, above all others. And so to say that Jesus is Lord is a big deal. It's a big deal back then, and it's still a big deal today. What is What do we mean when we say Jesus is Lord? When you say Jesus is Lord, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? I mean, do, are we referring to Jesus as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords? Uh, you know, I watched Downton Abbey, right? I love that show. And you know, Lord Grantham, well, he, he's the, the most important person in the county, right? Uh, but that's not the type of Lord we're talking about. We're talking about Lord with a capital L. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord to you? Something to think about, you know, does what does that mean? And, and once you figure that out, what, is, what impact does that have on your life? But not just that Jesus is Lord, Paul says, we also must believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. We don't need to believe that Jesus lived. We believe that he lives. Uh, in his death, we understand sacrificial love. And in his resurrection, we understand victory. We understand victory. We understand the power of Jesus. We understand the victory that Jesus had over sin, death, and the devil. And so we, we, when we say Jesus is Lord, we are talking about a God. We are talking about a Lord who is uh, willing to sacrifice himself to show the world uh, the love that he has for them, but also a, a Lord who is powerful enough to overcome that which we cannot overcome on our own, death, sin, and so that's what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord, that he is, that the way, that he is loving and that he is powerful, right? And loving and powerful and the creator of everything and with us at all times. And so when we say Jesus is Lord, there's a lot behind that. And I just wonder, you know, if you've ever thought what that means, uh, what that means to you. Okay, now we're going to have a little bit of fun. Verses 11 through 13. I don't, I find this fun. But uh, something that I've put together for the first time that I'm pretty excited about. Verses 11 through 13, the scripture says, No one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No one who believes in him will be put to shame. Verse 11, the scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. Well, does the scripture say that? So I did a little study, looked through scripture. What are some places that says no one will be put to shame? Isaiah 45, 17. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Psalm 25, 3. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame, for they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Isaiah, again, 55.4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. 1 Peter 2.16. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Joel 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 27, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Isaiah 49, 23, those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And then Romans 9, verse 33, from Tuesday, behold, I'm laying a whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's a common theme throughout scripture that the people who trust in God, the people who believe in God, the people who wait on God will not be put to shame. Have you ever thought about being put to shame? What does that mean to you? What does it mean to you to be put to shame? So, I mean, just look up the definition. It says to suffer shame or disgrace, right? To be shamed, to be humiliated, to be humiliated in front of people, to be found wanting in front of people, to realize, for others to realize about you that you're not good enough, that you're not strong enough, that you're not smart enough, right? Basically, that you're not enough, whatever, not enough, fill in the blank. That you come to realize that you are not enough. Well, that's what the law does. That's what the law, as Paul talks about the law, the law doesn't transform us. It just tells us what's right and what's wrong. And it makes us realize that we are not enough, that we are not good enough. I mean, this isn't just New Testament. We talk about the prophet Joel, the prophet Isaiah, Psalms. I mean, we're going back through a lot of Old Testament here. That you are not enough. You are not enough. And so in these quotes, Paul points to the prophets, points to the Psalms, and say, look, it's in the Old Testament that faith is the only way to God. Faith is the only way to God. You cannot get there on your own. Because if you try, if you say, I'm only going to get there because I am good enough, you are going to be put to shame. But if you come on the grounds of faith, you will not be put to shame. You will not be put to shame. I think that, I mean, a really powerful, powerful way for Paul to make his point here. And it's one that I think we we need to hear again and again and again and over and over and over that we cannot earn our salvation. We cannot earn our righteousness. It's all based on our faith. It's like we say that and, you know, it's all based on faith. You cannot earn your righteousness. Now you need to go to church more often and give more often and give, give more money and all this stuff so that you can, you know, please God. Well, that's just the complete opposite of what we just said. It's based on faith. God saw Abraham and saw his righteousness and reckoned it to him as faith. That's the point Paul is trying to make here. And he's making it again and again and again and again. Okay. Verses 14 through 15. But how are they to call on, on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Okay, so basically, if you call on the name of the Lord, you shall not be put to shame. Verse 14, how can you call on someone if you don't believe? How can you believe if no one's ever told you about him? Right? How are you to hear without someone to proclaim it? And who's going to proclaim it unless they are sent? Uh, basically Paul's saying, yeah, there's going to be, there's people out there who haven't heard about Jesus. And guess what? It's our job. 
It's our job to tell people about Jesus. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's our job to tell people that they will, you know, trust in God and you will not be put to shame. Trust in God and you will not uh, end up wanting. You will never reach a point where you realize that you're not enough in terms of your relationship with God. Um, I just imagine, imagine hearing about Jesus for the first time. Put yourself in that place. Pretend like you've never heard anything about Jesus. What would make you smile? What would confuse you? Would you want to hear about Jesus? I would hope so. And if so, then you can take that motivation to say, I think others might want to hear about Jesus. Now, the world we live in, I think there's very few people, if any, who haven't heard about Jesus. But I think a lot of people have heard about a cultural Jesus and not the Jesus of the Bible. I think there's a lot of uh, bad theology. Can I say that? Bad theology in the world where people believe in a Jesus who is not of the Bible. And I think it's our job. Our job is as people who care about what the Bible says about who Jesus is to be the proclaimers of the word, to tell people about Jesus, to tell people about grace, to tell people about forgiveness, to tell people they will not be put to shame. Okay, verses 18 and through 21, last section for today. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have been shown myself to those, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to disobedient and contrary people. Okay, so this is Paul talking about the people of Israel, right? The people of Israel who claim, well, we didn't hear. We didn't know about Jesus. Says, ah, yes, you have. Yes, you have. Now, this is a text about pretending to be ignorant, pretending to say, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I never knew. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Um, you know, it, it would make sense that you couldn't be blamed for something you didn't know, right? Um, but for Paul... Now, remember, Paul grew up Jewish, so he's talking to the people he grew up with. He's talking to people who, you know, he's known his whole life, right? He knows their customs. He knows their culture. So he has the uh, the authority, I guess, or the, you know, ability to say, yeah, you did. You, yeah, I'm, I'm calling you. Yeah, you had a chance. The reality is, this is Paul saying, the Jewish people, you did not accept Jesus because you didn't want to. Because you didn't want to. Because accepting Jesus meant change in your life. It meant giving up your uh, place of privilege. It meant, uh, it, it meant change. It meant realizing that maybe, uh, maybe things are different. Maybe we have it wrong. Maybe, uh, maybe we need to try something new. It means maybe we need to try something new. Anyway, they chose to be blinded. From the truth, I don't. I don't think that they stood before Jesus and actually uh, thought what he was saying was true, but said, "Yeah, well, I'm, I think that's true, but I'm going to pretend it's not." Right? They were blinded to it. They were blinded to it. They were blinded to it because they were interested in other things. They were interested in their own selfish desires. They were interested in keeping things the way that things were. They were interested in in you know 
the status quo. They weren't interested in Jesus. They weren't interested in Jesus. Um, I think that that's something we should all hear and think, well, you know, I, I love the grace. I love the forgiveness. I love the promise of salvation. But am I interested in Jesus? Am I interested in Jesus today? Not just what Jesus can do for me, but what I can do for Jesus. Not just what Jesus does for me, but what Jesus asks me to do. I think that's something we should all uh, ask ourselves and uh, consider those things. So uh, we will stop there. Let's close with a word of prayer. Uh, Good and gracious God, once again, we are thank you for your grace. We are thank you for the many ways in which you come to us and help us and encourage us and support us and give us strength uh, and and help us through the difficulties of life. Uh, we, We thank you for the promises you have made to us, for always being with us. And we pray that you be with us all today, that you help us to live out uh, our call as your disciples. Help us to share your message with others so that they might know your goodness, so that they might know your grace, so that they might know that uh, they will never be put to shame because of you. Uh, We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day. Stay safe and uh, stay out of the wind. Anchor yourself down. Make sure you don't blow away. It's pretty crazy out there. Have a great day. Take care. Bye.